our passage today is from John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now, now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. All right. Well, last week Ashley spoke, so I am going to go for 45 minutes today. That's not true. That's not true. It's good to be back and to be with all of you. Uh, Ashley spoke last week, and it was really wonderful, and I'm happy to be back in the saddle because I have words, and they need to, be get, they need to get out. So uh, I want to start off with just a question this morning, and that question is, what do you think the normal Christian life is supposed to look like? What's the normal Christian life? And when you think of that, you probably have some images that run through your head. What, what, what qualifies as normal, Right? Maybe you have negative connotations that are in your brain because the Christians that you've known in your life aren't necessarily positive. But I think on average, when many of us think about what the normal Christian life is or what it looks like, the things we think about are, tend to be good. They tend to be, they tend to be fairly positive. A, a Christian person is supposed to be kind. They're supposed to be loving. They're supposed to be humble, right? But they're supposed to be, in general, just kind of a good person right? But the point of the question and what, uh, and what is brought to your mind when you think about the average Christian life is kind of important, because even though they are positive, I think when we think of what the average Christian is, and, when, and then we compare that to what the kind of average Christian life looked like in the Scriptures, there's a little bit of a disconnect. There's a little bit of a gap even between what how you would experience just being a normal Christian person in the world in the 21st century, and the way that you, when you read the scriptures, what you see, you, could, you read the book of Acts, and you kind of get your hair blown back by all of the, the things that were occurring in the life of an average Christian in that time and in that place. When you read through the book of Acts, you see uh, specifically in Acts 4, what seems to be about two weeks after uh, these people put their faith in Jesus. That, and all of a sudden, these people start doing crazy, crazy things. They display this kind of radical financial generosity by ruthlessly getting rid of all the extra in their lives so that they can provide for the needs of others in their community. They seem to re regularly encounter God's miracle-working power. And the apostles also... Uh, and the apostles, and not just the apostles, but the kind of run-of-the-mill rank-and-file followers of Jesus in the New Testament have these tremendous examples of God's miracle-working power in their life. They see these amazing healings. They are walking around constantly in this almost this state that we would just say as supernatural. And it seems that early Christians had this general sense everywhere they went, of God's power and His presence actively working in and around them, everywhere they were. And you read this stuff and you go, okay, what am I missing here, right? What am I missing? Because there is a gap between the way I experience these things and the way these things seem to have been experienced in the New Testament. The, 
the normal Christian life in the book of Acts is anything but normal when we put that into our 21st century context and experience. It's so different, in fact, that you would not be mistaken in assuming that something substantial has changed, right? That something significant has occurred that has changed. That the way God was working back then is just different than the way that He chooses to work today, right? And there are groups of Christians who think this is, in fact, the case. These people are called cessationists. Cessationists. These are not people from Texas who want to secede from the Union, though I'd be okay with it if they left. Um, Sorry, that was mean. That was meaner than it needed to be. Cessationists are people who believe that God was working in a very specific or special way uh, in the early days of the church in order to get the whole thing established, and that now, in a sense, God has cooled his activity in the earth a little bit. But there have also been Christians throughout the history of the church who you would call renewalists, renewalists. And these are people who believe that the average Christian life in the book of Acts is supposed to be the average Christian life, period. And throughout the history of the church, we see examples of these types of renewal movements. Sometimes people call them revivals. We, we see uh, in the 6th century, St. Benedict, uh, if you know who that guy is, he kind of started what we know today as the monastic tradition. He, he invented monks, basically. Uh, in the 6th century, he, he, was, he was attempting to address uh, abuses of power uh, that were occurring in the church at the time. You fast forward to the 15th and 16th century, and you have the Moravian Renewal Movement, which was, at the time, a a gigantic missions-sending movement. In the 16th century as well, you have the Radical Reformation with the Anabaptists in and around Europe and Germany. The Great Awakening in our country and in in, uh, Western Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries in America was this massive move of God that saw scores of people rededicate and refocus their lives towards Christ. And our church, actually, our movement of churches, draws its history back to one of these renewal movements as well, called the charismatic renewal, or sometimes called Pentecostalism, that occurred at at the turn of the century, really exactly at the turn of the century. And the people who keep track of these types of things, the people who keep track of these types of movements and renewals, church historians and the such, uh, they are unanimous in this belief. That, that, the, that the renewal movement that occurred in the beginning of the 21st century, this charismatic renewal, is without question in the history of the church the largest mission-sending uh, renewal in the history of the church. That, uh, the, that the face of global Christianity was completely transformed by this renewal movement that occurred really in, in Los Angeles. Who knew good stuff could happen in L.A., right? Uh, man, I'm kind of... A, I'm really letting people have it today, aren't I? Uh, But uh, uh, that happened in Los Angeles about 100 years ago. But what all of these renewal movements have in common is this desire to recapture what we would call the normal Christian life. They realize that there has been some type of malaise that has settled in, that has, that has kind of found its way into the hearts and corporate lives of the church And they seek a kind of renewal of God's Spirit to recapture some aspect of the Christian life that has been forgotten. Like we said, during the Reformation, it was kind of widespread abuse by the uh, the church and the selling of indulgences. And in the charismatic renewal in the 20th century, it was a reawakening or an awareness of 
and participation with the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Because when you read the scriptures, it seems like these early Christians had this sense that the Holy Spirit was kind of on the loose, that he was kind of on the loose. The Holy Spirit was this very present reality in their lives. And just a cursory glance at the scriptures uh, draws out for us that these first Christians uh, prayed to the Spirit, were guided by the Spirit, acknowledged the Spirit of God, were baptized in the Spirit, and dependent on the Spirit as the animating force of their lives. This is just a cursory glance at the New Testament. And so today, we're kind of going to look at this idea of the Holy Spirit, that we're continuing a sermon series we're calling CORE, which is all about the foundational beliefs of our church, those beliefs that we think make our church unique or distinct. And so today we're beginning a two-week conversation, actually, on the Holy Spirit to try and recapture for our own individual lives and for our corporate church a sense of Christian normalcy, a life lived in the vitality and activity of the Holy Spirit. But first, I think there's probably a little bit of biblical legwork that we need to do before we really understand what is happening and what actually how we even get into this idea of the Holy Spirit. Because for many of us, I think it is a little novel. It's a, it might be even a little unique. You hear me say things like the third person of the Trinity the, and the Holy Spirit, and people begin to go, okay. Nick has gone off the deep end, right? This is, what, this is what people can sometimes come to think. And actually, I have a box of snakes in the back. <laughs> so you are correct. But, uh, but, but, the, but the, the truth is, is that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, most people are just vaguely confused, right? They're just, they're just slightly confused. We, they, we don't always know what we're talking about, and it's not helped by the fact that in our tradition, you can hear uh, as people occasionally call the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost, which is scary, because now there's a ghost who's out and about, right? This, there's all kinds of things that we run into when we talk about this that kind of give people pause, you know, there are people come from all these different types of traditions and uh, different ways of speaking about the Holy Spirit. And in, and in our tradition, it is one that finds its roots in a movement that wanted to emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit. And so to, uh, today, we kind of want to dig into that idea. But this idea is not something that's particularly new even. To believe in the Holy Spirit, to, to focus on the Holy Spirit is something that the church has always done, has always done. In the Nicene Creed, which is basically just an early Christian belief statement agreed upon by all the leaders, this is what it says. It says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. If you read the creed closely, it affirms that there is one God, right? That there is one God, but that that God is a unity of three persons, Father, Son, which is Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Notice that the Holy Spirit is called the Lord, right? In the same way that Jesus is referred to as Lord. Now, this belief in the Holy Spirit uh, and the Trinity is, I will readily admit, a mystery, Right? It's not something that's particularly easy for us to get our heads around all the time, but it is vital 
that it is vital to understand. The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says that for many Christians, and I believe this to be true, that the practicing creed is something like this. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son. But I wonder about the Holy Spirit, right? This is a general creed or the practicing creed of, in our lives. And then he goes on to say, the Spirit has become a kind of, uh, has become God's specter, if you will, an unseen, less than vibrant influence, hardly God, very God. But the problem with this kind of assumption, this kind of, kind of general default towards the Holy Spirit, is that in the Scriptures, that over and over and over, we seem to see them affirm again and again that the Holy Spirit is the irreducible, unminimizable third person of the Trinity who animates, empowers, and propels the life of individuals in the church. This is what the Holy Spirit is. And so today, I hope to clear up some of this confusion by getting uh, into this, our teaching text for today and looking exactly how Jesus understood the Holy Spirit and His role in the life of individuals and in the church. And really, over the next few weeks, what I want uh, for us is to come uh, to a fuller uh, place of embracing the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that all of us would kind of have a kind of personal renewal of the Holy Spirit's activity and influence in our life. So that's the plan, all right? This week, we talk about the, who the Holy Spirit is, and next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the Holy Spirit does, all right? So let's, if you have your, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn uh, to John 16, verses 12 through 15, or it'll be on the screen. This text that Jesus is teaching out of today comes out of, a, uh, comes out of the end of the book of John, and Jesus is talking over and over and over to his disciples about what things are going to be like after he leaves, when he leaves them. And the disciples don't necessarily like this conversation, but Jesus has this conversation with them actually like three times, both in 14, 15, and 16. He says roughly the same thing. But in, ver- uh, but in chapter 16, uh, beginning of verse 12, I'm just going to read it again for us. He says this, have, I have much more to say to you, more than you, you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will, he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will, will receive from me what he will make known to you. Now, this is kind of a confusing passage because Jesus is using all of these pronouns in kind of weird ways, ways that we're not used to using pronouns, right? And there's just a couple of observations from this text that hopefully uh, clear it up for us. And the first is that Jesus seems to be arguing that the Holy Spirit is a person, is a person, So so when we think of the Holy Spirit, when we actually say these words, what we can think of, what can be brought to our minds is a kind of impersonal force in the world, right? We've all seen enough Star Wars that when we we think of the Holy Spirit, that is our default, I would argue. It's it's worked its way into our our minds to such an extent that that's what we think about, right? That That the Holy Spirit is just kind of a force or a power or a force field right, of God's presence, and that that, that, that that force or power is not a personal reality. Yet Jesus seems to believe the Spirit is a personal reality. The Spirit is not an impersonal force or divine power, not a vague influence of God. It is, He is a person, a person with a will, desire, and intention. 
Jesus says, but he, the spirit, but when he, he, right, the spirit of truth comes. He uses a first person pronoun here, right? Jesus assigns the spirit personhood. And other Christians do the same thing throughout the scriptures. Just a cursory reading of the New Testament, particularly in Paul, Paul uses all these verbs of the spirit that you would only use uh, to, to designate agency. So the Spirit searches all things. The Spirit searches in 1 Corinthians. The Spirit knows the mind of God in 1 Corinthians 2. The Spirit dwells amongst and within believers in 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 8. The Spirit cries out in Galatians 4. The Spirit leads us into the way of God in Galatians 5. And the Spirit, and this is one that's interesting, is grieved. The Spirit himself is grieved at our sin in Ephesians 4.30. The Spirit is a person that needs to be related to as a person. But, at, but this leads us to the second observation from this passage, and that is that the Spirit's primary job is not necessarily to draw attention to himself. The Spirit's primary job is to glorify Jesus. In beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will see for me what he will make known to you. Jesus says the same thing a few chapters earlier in John 14 when he calls the Spirit the advocate or helper. In, in Greek, the word is paraclete, who leads us into, truth, into all truth about Jesus. It is for this reason, for this from this passage here, that the church father uh, uh, Basil writes in his book on the Spirit, in his little treatise on the Spirit, for he who does not believe the Spirit does not believe in the Son, and he who does not believe in the Son does not believe in the Father. For it is impossible to worship the Son save by the Holy Spirit, impossible to call upon the Father save by the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit is the person of God who, uh, who uh, reveals the truth about Jesus in our hearts. This is the Spirit's primary role. And do you see this kind of beautiful Trinitarian inner working that's happening in this passage? No person of the Spirit is, uh, is a kind of lone ranger. They're all dependent upon one another. They're all interacting in this beautiful way. The Spirit is the one who leads our minds, Jesus says, into truth. The Spirit is the one who is the active leader of our minds. The Spirit, is, Jesus says, is kind of like a skilled tour guide who leads us down winding paths in, in a confusing city, and it's not allowing us to take kind of the wrong turn that would lead us to a place that we would rather avoid. But the Spirit, rather, is always directing us, always directing us to the person of Jesus, exalting Jesus, bringing our minds back to Jesus and helping us see Jesus well. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And this is also why uh, when, we read the, when we read about the Spirit in the New Testament, uh, we can often read uh, the New Testament writers call the Spirit the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of God. Because the same Spirit's primary responsibility is to shed the love of God abroad in our hearts by leading us to the person and work of Christ. 
there's this beautiful, like I said, inner working and cooperation between the, the, this, the persons of God, the, the, the Trinitarian uh, reality. So that's observation number two. Observation number three from this text. The Spirit is the very presence of God that dwells in our hearts. Jesus says this to his disciples in chapter 14. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Believe, uh, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Basically, Jesus is leaving his disciples, and he says that it is better that he go away, right? That he depart uh, when he... Uh, when he does, and then the Father, when he departs, will send his Spirit, right? And that Spirit, God's Spirit, will be a kind of uh, down payment, a, a living presence of God's reality or his kingdom that will dwell in their hearts. Jesus says, it's better that I go away because, uh, because Jesus is only, he's not, he's not within them. And that when, when the Spirit is sent, there is this indwelling that takes place. Thomas Oden is a, a scholar, says it this way, through the Son, human, human history was brought into concrete meeting with the incarnate God, who, who felt our human infirmities, afflictions, and death. But through the Spirit, this encounter comes even closer quarter by indwelling our hearts and attesting to the work of the Son in our hearts. The very power and presence of God that created the cosmos and raised Jesus from the dead, residing in the church and in the heart of Christians. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, again says it this way, by the presence of the Spirit, God's love played out in full in Christ, uh, out to the full in Christ, is an experienced reality in the heart of the believer. This is what the Spirit so uh, richly shed abroad in our hearts. You see, Jesus seems to tell us that the personal presence of God that is shed abroad in our hearts is more significant than, uh, the, than his own physical presence that was with the disciples on the earth. Because now, instead of God being outside of them, right, just an external influence, the very power and presence of God that raised Jesus from the dead is present within them. Not subject to or subservient to them, right? not dependent upon them, but indwelling them and indwelling us. To be a Christian, then, is to take the Spirit with full seriousness as the way that the eternal God of the universe is present with His people. This is what the Spirit does. And this is the promise of the Spirit that was anticipated by the prophet Ezekiel when he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And it is this very same life-giving spirit that enlivens and fills us with the very life of God. Now, one last question for today. If all of this is true, right? If all of this is true, why does the church seem to be so uh, in such a constant need of renewal in this area? Why do people seem to be in such constant need of renewal? Why do we need to be reminded again and again that the Spirit is the very power of God indwelling the church and individual Christians? Why do we need that? 
If the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, if the scriptures are accurate in this regard, if it's indwelling us and it's filling us and it's doing all of these wonderful things, why is our normal experience of the Christian life so sometimes mundane? Why is it so normal, right? Why does my life still feel blah at times, right? Well, the reality is that, and I I think this is true, that the church is in constant need of renewal and that we are in constant need of renewal of the very power of the Spirit to dwell fully in us because God is not a micromanager. And the Holy Spirit that has taken up residence in our hearts when we yield our lives over to Him is not a power monger. This is part of the reason in the New Testament that, that the presence of the Spirit in the life of the church is seen as this, uh, the, 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 the New Testament is called to this kind of consistent engagement with the Spirit. Because the Spirit will only take up as much residence on our hearts as we give Him. There is, there is no such thing, as much as we're using language here that sounds kind of funny, like the Spirit coming uh, into our hearts, right? The Spirit is not a micromanager and does not control us. And w- the Spirit only takes up as much residence in our lives as we have yielded over to Him. This is the reality of who God is. God is a God who longs to not control us, but cooperate with us. The normal Christian life is one in which we are opening ourselves up to an engagement with the Spirit that is already dwelling in our hearts. Christians have always acknowledged this. And we have also always acknowledged that there is, that there is a need in the Christian life to continually free up more space, more real estate in our hearts for the Spirit to come in. That we are, we are constantly in the process of giving up more control to God. We hear in the New Testament about the need for the work of God in our hearts to be perfected even. This is the language of the New Testament. And Jesus says it in this way. Uh, he says, notice when he talks about the Spirit, he says the Spirit will lead you into all truth. The Spirit will lead you into all truth. Not that when he comes, he will automatically, pos- not that when the Spirit comes, you will automatically possess all truth, but rather that this uh, walk of faith is a kind of journey, a journeying with the Spirit, a journeying with God that leads us into truth, that takes us from a place to another place over time, right? This is what the, this is what the New Testament talks about. There's a, there's a formation that needs to occur in us, and there's a yieldedness that needs to consistently occur in us. There's a cooperation with the Spirit that we're called to. Christians are people Christians are people who need to constantly be empowered by and yielded to the Spirit. Not once, not three times, but consistently in our lives. You see, the normal Christian life is not one in which everything is always a heightened spiritual experience. We can read the New Testament and be confused into that reality. But the normal Christian life is one in which we are constantly letting ever more of the Holy Spirit into our lives by yielding to His power and influence. This is what's normal. The great uh, pastor and church father, Augustine, had this, this prayer. Uh, Augustine lived in the late 4th, 5th centuries. Here's what he said. This is his prayer. O Holy Spirit, 
resend plentifully into my heart. Resend plentifully into my heart. Enlighten the dark corners of my neglected dwelling and scatter there thy cheerful beams, which is a fun thing to say, but it holds, it holds very true that we are all in need of a kind of resending uh, of the Holy Spirit's light into our heart. We all have dark corners of our own lives that need to be enlightened by the goodness and the love of God. We all have places in our own minds that need uh, the beams of the Holy Spirit's love to kind of be, well, beamed in, right? There are parts of our own lives that are, that are broken and that we allow to stay broken because we don't allow the work of the Holy Spirit into that corner because it's sensitive. It hurts us a little bit, right? We don't, maybe we don't even want to admit to ourselves that need. But the reality of the Christian life is that we need to be ruthless about allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and change us, to transform and renew us, to make us who God would have us ultimately to be. This is what engagement with the, with the, with the Spirit is, and this is what we're called to. The Holy Spirit is an ever-present reality in the life of a Christian. This is a normal thing. And if the Holy Spirit is not an ever-present reality in your life, I have good news. You can pray Augustine's prayer. You can, you, can, you can yield again and again and again to the presence of God in your life. You don't, have to, you don't have to be shut off from it. All God is waiting for is your willingness to participate with Him. This is all God is longing for. Now, we have all kinds of hurts and hang-ups and brokenness, and all kinds of stuff gets in the way of this process, I know. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is a person with will and intention and who wants to take up residence within you. Now, very often when things get, at, get their most dire in our lives, when we are uh, stuck in traffic, which is about as dire as it gets, it doesn't happen very much in Cedar Falls, but Ashley and I went to Des Moines last week, and I was like, why are all these people here? <laughs> I lived there for five years, and all of a sudden I can't even drive. Uh, the reality is that, the reality is that in those moments where God couldn't feel further away, in those moments, the scriptures tell us that the Spirit is present with us. It is just our ability to be aware of that presence that makes all the difference. When life gets uh, as hard as it can possibly get, when the world seems as topsy-turvy as it could ever be, when everything just feels stressful and bad and broken, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit is there waiting for us. And when, when, and when we invite the Spirit into our lives, what we're not doing is, uh, is inviting a Spirit who's like a long ways away that we're like calling what we're actually doing is awaking up our own hearts to the reality of a spirit that is already present with us. Does this make sense? And so, over the next couple of weeks, what, I, what I'm hoping for, what I'm hoping for, is that all of us would kind of have a personal renewal of the spirit in our lives. That we would be awakened and enlivened to the reality that the spirit wants to take up more real estate in our hearts. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. But the spirit wants to take up more residence in our hearts. He really does. And part of the way that we're doing that as a, as a church this summer is by emphasizing prayer on Wednesdays. We had our first week last week, um, uh, Wednesdays at 12, from 12 to 1. And I just want to encourage you again, 
that if you're, if you're free during that time, please join us. And if you're not, uh, please pray with us wherever uh, you find yourself. But, but I really believe that a type of consistency in prayer, uh, the, uh, a, a time every week or, and a time every day where we make ourselves available to God. We say, search me, O God. We say, we say find, find those dark corners of my own heart and search them out and, and bring your spirit into those places. A, a time every week when we do that is a time to find the goodness and grace of God in the midst of a kind of broken and hurried world. It really is. And as we do that, and as we lean into those places, I think we will find lives that begin to look far more like the normal Christian life that we find in the New Testament than they do like the normal Christian life than we kind of assume in modern Western American realities. I believe that. I really do. And so, let me pray for you. Father, we love you. And we ask that as you, Lord, uh, call to us, that you call to us, that we would uh, yield ourselves again afresh anew to the reality of your heart dwelling, your heart and your spirit dwelling within us. It is only by your spirit, it is only by the, the spirit of love that is shed abroad in our hearts that we can make the profession that Jesus is Lord. And Father, we look to the person of Jesus and we look to God and we say, Fill our hearts with more of that love. Fill our hearts with more of that goodness. Help us to walk away from those parts of our lives uh, that we've, we've kind of shielded off or that we've, we've, uh, we've built a wall between us and God because there, were parts of, there are parts of our hearts that we just don't want to let God into. But rather, this week and o- over the next couple of weeks, would, the, would we be convinced again and again and again about the, of the reality of the Holy Spirit in our midst? That the the reality of the Holy Spirit that is already dwelling within us, the reality of the goodness of God that we find, that we can find whenever we go, if we're just aware enough to see it, to know it. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray again, come, shed your light and your love abroad in our hearts. Reveal to us those places of our own lives where we're not yielded over to you. And would you, God, give us a fresh insight, fresh revelation, fresh vision even into the power and presence of God that is available to us through the Spirit. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.